Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Most of you will not know what I'm talking about. But there was a band called The Birds. And The Birds took this section of scripture and created a number one hit on the pop charts. How many of you remember this? Wow, that's good, I think. What were you doing listening to the radio? Anyway, I want to set this in our mind. This is a unit, a complete package that works by God's providence, hand in glove by what, with what we're doing on Sunday mornings. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to heal and a time a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He's made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever and there is nothing to add to it. And there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and that which, will, that which will be has already been. For God sees what has passed by. One of the things that Solomon challenges us to do in the book of Ecclesiastes is to think. Christians who think unfortunately, are a rarity. Most people are indoctrinated in what to think. Very few mature into the category of how to think. Solomon is dealing with a group of people who might surprise you. We keep going back to this. I want to remind you, he's talking to a group of students. If you were to go over to chapter 12, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, speaking second person to young people. Ecclesiastes seems at first glance over our heads, hard to understand. And yet Solomon is saying to a group of students, this is youth group night. It's a sermon that Solomon is giving. And he's saying, students, young people, you need to know how to think. You need to have biblical theological categories for all that you're going to experience and all the, the things that people are going to try to pass off on you as knowledge. <clears throat> 
At the core of this book, and at the core of what we're going to look at tonight, is the sovereignty of God. That God, the creator God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, whom Solomon is describing and worshiping and explaining, he's sovereign. Now, the word sovereign means he's king. He sits on a throne. He is the director and ruler of every single atom and molecule in the universe that he created. People don't like to look much into the sovereignty of God because they're afraid that they're going to run into a, a dead end. They're going to get trapped into a cul-de-sac. They're going, to, they're going to be a record that skips. I'm dating myself there. And it just never gets off of that groove. About 1,000 B.C., 10th century B.C., Solomon posed and asked the most serious question and then dared to actually answer this question. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What are we doing here? And the book of Ecclesiastes is his autobiography in his attempt to discover and then articulate this answer. Remember, he at the end of his life, he had no limits, no restraints. He drove down every possible avenue to try to find meaning, which he thought would be satisfying. He tries this grand experiment in chapter 2, and it comes up short. Chapter 1, he lays out the problem. The world, nature that is, seems to be aimless, seems to be endless, seems to be cyclical. And so life seems to follow this pattern. In three verses in chapter 1, he sets the problem and the tone of this amazing book. Look over at chapter 1 for a moment. In verse 2, he says, familiar words, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. What is he saying there? Vanity is the Hebrew word hebel, H-E-B-E-L, or havel, depending on the pronunciation. Havel just means not meaninglessness, but transitory temporary. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Nothing lasts that I want to grab to hold on to to bring me meaningful satisfaction and lasting satisfaction. Look at verse 3. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What advantage is a different way of translating when he's saying, what's the use? What, I'm working harder to make more, to have more, to store more, to protect more, and in the end, it's going to go to people after I die who may or may not take care of it, as we saw in our last study. Look down at verse 8. All things are wearisome, and man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. You know what he's saying there? No matter what I've done, no matter how hard I've tried, no matter how much I've enjoyed, it doesn't last. He's not saying that the things in this life don't bring us joy and satisfaction, even temporal meaning, even moments of, of shared joy with others. What he is saying is if you place all of your money on that to bring you lasting meaning and satisfaction, you're going to be desperately mistaken. So with that observation, remember in chapter 2, he tries these avenues of approaching to find, uh, approaching meaning and discovering meaning. He tries to find uh, meaning in these experiments that he conducted. Pleasure, materialism, education. His conclusion was the same as his conclusion regarding nature. All is vanity. It's empty. It's steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. 
but he does come to some very positive and encouraging insights by the time he finishes chapter 2. In this world of vanities, of temporal meaning and significance, he says it's still better to be smarter than dumber, to be moral than immoral, but at the end, the moral and the immoral, the smart and the less smart, will all end up in a grave. Solomon is screaming at us that life in the universe without God is spiritual suicide. Without God, nothing will ultimately make sense. Life becomes nothing more than an effort to numb ourselves from our meaninglessness and our fear of death. So, the answer sounds simple. Just introduce God into the picture, right? And then everything will work out. Just bring God in, give God a godly perspective, and everything will be fine. Not so simple. Actually, introducing God into the picture doesn't only, well, let's say it this way, not only does not satisfy, it could be a problem unless you understand God rightly. Most people have some concept of God, but if it's not the biblically defined God, there's a significant breach of theological integrity. At the end of uh, chapter 5, actually chapters 3 through 5, Solomon's going to teach us, in a most interesting and shocking uh, way, a lesson that man without God is hopeless and hopelessly in despair. But man with God can be devastatingly confusing without proper theology. The only thing worse than no theology is bad theology. This is the crucial issue. It's the maturing of any Christian to understand theology properly. And just because we express a belief in God doesn't make the world or our life end as being vanity. In fact, to come to Christ, problems don't leave. You don't get exempt from tragedy or injustice, harm, injury, civil uh, conflict. Wars, sickness, death, all of that still is a part of our existence as believers. So, this wise Koheleth, the preacher, that's the Hebrew word for the teacher here, Solomon, is going to use these next three chapters to help us navigate through this broken world. And the anchor point he starts in chapter 3 is the sovereignty of God. And i got to tell you, these first 15 verses are really the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. He refers to God 11 times in 22 verses. He's shown the despair of the atheist in chapters 1 and 2. And now he realistically tackles the problem of the theist. Remember, Solomon opens that theological closet that most people don't want to look into. The sovereignty of God. And he tackles it right out of the gates. What is the sovereignty of God? It's very important that we take a quick sidebar for a quick theology lesson, answer that tremendously important question. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Pretty simple, isn't it? Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deeps. We've studied many times Lamentations chapter 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill 
go forth. Not moral ill, but tragedy, difficulty, suffering. Now at this point, we have to talk for a moment about the two sides of the coin that we've, we've discussed so many times in Ecclesiastes. And that's sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is God's rule over everything. Providence is his rule specifically applied in your life. You've heard me say before that sovereignty is way up in the clouds. Providence is when God's sovereignty messes with your kitchen. It gets involved in your life. Love the title of that one youth book that uh, deals with the sovereignty of God. It says, if God is in control, why can't I get my locker open? It's a good title. This view of God's relation to the world has got to be distinguished. Our view of sovereignty must be distinguished from pantheism, which absorbs everything into God. Deism, which cuts him off from everything. Dualism, which divides and control uh, the control of, of the world between God and another evil power. Indeterminism, which holds that there's no control at all. Determinism, which is fatalism. We don't have any choice in anything. The doctrine of chance, which denies the controlling power of God to be rational. The doctrine of fate, which denies that God is good and benevolent. We have to avoid all of those philosophies that the world just lives by without question. God is king overall, and he does exactly as he will. He rules all nature, all animals, all the happenings of the world, great and small, every thunderstorm, every lightning bolt, every plague, every death of a sparrow. Physical life in men and animals is to be given and taken by God himself. He is absolutely providential, absolutely sovereign. I'm entitled tonight, Just in Time. And what I mean by that is God does everything just in time, on his timing, but everything he does in time is also right. It's just. Now, we are going to move very fast through this, this text, and that's, I think, the intention. It's one unit that needs to be tackled together. What I want to give you are eight insights into God's sovereignty. This will parallel the things we've been studying in Romans 8 on our Sunday, in our Sunday morning studies. Eight insights into God's sovereignty. The first is the biggest one. It's eight verses. Number one, what God has appointed is unavoidable. What God has appointed is unavoidable. Look at verse one. There is an appointed time for everything. That's a passive verb. It's ha it has been appointed by someone. That's by God. God, you could say, has appointed a time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. This is Solomon's final thesis. God is absolutely in control. All of life is, has been ordained by God. I know that brings up lots of questions. This is not the place we're going to answer those. We'll get to some of those in Romans chapter 9. To illustrate this, he lists 14 opposing brackets to show that God appoints the time for everything, as he says in chapter 1, under the sun. That means this side of the garden this side of heaven. He just goes through a list. Most of them are on the opposite. Most of them are on poles. And he says, God has appointed these times. For example, verse 2. There's a time to give birth and a time to die. We're not going to belabor all these points, but God has circled your day of birth. He knew the day you would be born, 
And I don't want to discourage anyone, but he knows the day you will die. He has already marked your life out. Psalm 139, he knows every single day you're going to live. He knows the day, the hour, the moment. He knows what the clock is going to say when your heart beats its last. He's already said it. Kind of puts a new spin on going to the gym, doesn't it? Now, we should go to the gym, we should eat well. All those are great. That makes us feel better and, and, and glorify God better and it frees us up to do things that we couldn't do if we weren't taking care of our tents. But know this, you and I will never add one second to our life beyond what God has appointed. He's marked it. That should be sobering and that should be freeing at the same time. George Whitfield said, until the Lord calls me home, I'm invincible. I love that. He's marked it. Your birth certificate has a, an expiration date in heaven. Then he goes on, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Just a normal agriculture. There's times that you plant, there's times you go and you plow the field and you start over. Verse 3, a time to kill, kill and a time to heal. Talking about war. Go through the, the history of the Old Testament. There were times when God said, go and fight this battle for my namesake. And there's other times where, where there's healing. Again, we're not going to take the, the time right now to go through all of the nuances of war in the Old Testament. By the way, there are several Hebrew words for kill. This is not the one in the Ten Commandments for murder. The idea here is that when sickness or plague or even war comes, God decides who lives and God decides who dies. Hannah said that in 1 Samuel 2 in her great prayer. She says, you are the one who kills, you are the one who makes alive. A time to tear down and a time to build up. This was in the day when there was no concrete. There, uh, they would put mud in between stones and bricks would be uh, kind of sewn together with, with mortar that they would made from whatever mud was around the hut. And they didn't last very long. You typically didn't just keep repairing your house. You would kind of, let's knock it down and start over. There's a time for that. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. We know that. This is encouraging to me. There is a time to weep. And there are times to laugh. Both are given by God. I won't go into great detail, but this last weekend I was uh, at a, a wedding and was praying before the wedding with the groom and the father of the bride and the father of the groom. And all of us were in tears praying about the life that was ahead of this couple. There's a time for that. Can I just say this? Real men do cry. How do you know that? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. There's a time to cry. And there's a time to laugh. Christians who don't laugh are oxymorons. Not morons, oxymorons. There's a time to enjoy. And learning to laugh is such a gift of God, is it not? Laughing is wonderful. And let me just say this. You will learn to laugh best when you learn to laugh at yourself. There's a time for that. God has appointed a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. It's a reference to the Jewish festivals. Sorry, it has nothing to do with swing dancing, country line dancing, or the movie Footloose. Time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to be solemn and to have festivals of going to a funeral. And there's a time to have a wedding feast, to dance, and to be jovial and 
happy. Verse 5, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Don't let this be your four-year-old's life verse. I just threw a rock at the window. Why? Because the Bible said there's a time for this. Tour guides in Israel will tell you a legend that God gave an angel all the stones of the earth to distribute all around the globe. But the angel tripped and they all fell in Israel. If you've ever been there, it is a rocky, stony place. There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. What they're talking about is, is the use of stones. They were used, they're still used today to tear us up a hill. They would put stone walls in a flat area, cut into a stone wall in a flat area all the way up a hill. And those would break down over time and you'd have to gather them up, literally throw them together and restart things. It's just talking about how things degrade and you have to start over. There's a time, God's appointed that. Nothing lasts forever. The issue is clearing a field for planting or making terraces and then putting rocks in the garden. 2 Kings 3, 19 and 25 talk about this very thing, by the way. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Is he talking about being rude and being kind? No, no. There are times to embrace. There are times for a, a godly hug. There are times to embrace one another. And there are times, like with Job, you just need to shun it and stand back and take another approach. What he's saying specifically is there are times to be in a godly, above reproach way, physical with one another, and there are times to respect one another's space and distance. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up as lost. In my sock drawer, there's this one smart wool sock that's been there for a long time. And I'm convinced if I wait long enough, its friend will show up. (laughs) And it hasn't. Throw it away. There's a time to search and a time to give up as lost. I was thinking about this verse tragically this uh, last week when those uh, 14-year-old boys were went missing off the coast of Florida. They searched for them for five days, and there was a time when they said, we, we can't keep searching. That's exactly what God is saying. There's an appointed time by God for these things. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Do I even need to go into what that means? Remember that drawer, that closet? There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. What's interesting about this is this talking about clothes. Now, typically in the ancient Near East, you had one set of clothes and maybe two. If you had two, you were considered wealthy. And what you would do is just keep repairing it. You would keep repairing it. You would keep repairing it. If there was a large section of your toga or of your, uh, your overcloth, you would, you would tear that off and sew other pieces together. And it was, it was the way you kept your, your clothes actually recycled. Time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Wow, do we understand that. There are times when it's good to talk and times that you just need to be quiet. A time to love and a time to hate. What is this talking about? Well, obviously there are times to love. We understand that. Time to hate, that's defined contextually by hating sin, hating God's enemies, hating what God hates. Time for war and a time for peace. Not all war is wrong. There are just wars that God has defined. And there are times for peace. 
Because God rules the nations, he's the director of times of war and peace. And the point is simply this. We have actually very little control over the things and the times that God has ordained. It's shocking how little control we really have. And you know what Ecclesiastes and Romans is going to continue to teach us? God continues to introduce difficulty into our lives to remind us how little control we have and how sovereign he is. What God has appointed is unavoidable. So what? So respond to life as you would respond to God. Respond to life as you would respond to God. That's the takeaway. God has given me a helpmeet. My sweet wife, Kim, who likes to remind me of things I preach on when I need them most. I hate being late. I was the son of a Marine Early is on time. A leader who's on time is late. I heard that my whole life. I hate being late. Well, she's so sweet to say, look, if we know we're going to be 15 minutes late and it's 30 minutes to get there, we don't have to worry about being late till 15 minutes in. Why are we going to worry 30 minutes? Only have to worry 15? It's just this, these great jewels of wisdom. Well, uh, one place this shows up for me personally is in, in traffic. I've told you this before. I really, you can pray for me in traffic. I don't do well with traffic. I pay for the roads. I should be able to use them as I wish. Very selfish oriented. And sometimes we'll be in traffic and my wife, oh, this happens countless times. I'll say something. I'm just going to, I complain. I was going to try to make it spiritual. I complain. This is, he's, what that? And she'll say, How, how's your view of God's sovereignty right now? <laughs> Respond to life as you would respond to God. Number two, these are going to go fast. What God has appointed is just and right. You say, well, you got seven more. This is going to go fast. Trust me. What God has appointed is just and it's right. Verse nine, what profit is there to the worker from that which, in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Note that God is the one who has given this task to man. What is the task? Task is life. He's given us life to live. That's the task he's assigned to us. And the reason that life is seen negatively as a task is because God has made it that way after and because of Genesis 3. Solomon is going to teach us over and over, remember you live in a fallen world. Remember the world is broken. So what profit is there to the worker from that which he toils? We're going to find some good profit in just a moment. He says, I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. I have seen the broken world in which we live, and it's hard. And it's not hard in the same way for everyone. It's harder for some people than it is others. We must remember that dealing with life and all its difficulties is much better than not living at all. He'll come back to that. What God has appointed is just. It's right. God doesn't do anything wrong toward us. So what? So be thankful we don't get what we deserve. Be thankful we don't get what we deserve or it would be a whole lot worse for a whole lot longer. 
Number three, it's just in the first part of verse 11. What God has appointed is good. It's good. He has made everything appropriate, New American Standard says, in his time. Literally, the word means good or beautiful, aesthetically pleasing. He's made everything pleasing and good and appropriate, get this, in its time. One of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible, this is the equivalent of Romans 8, 28. He makes all things appropriate in its time, all things good. Only God can bring beauty and good and meaning out of every event in life. Otherwise, there is unquenchable doom and hopelessness. But know this, we don't always see that beauty in the moment. I won't take much time to tell you this, but there was a girl I dated in college, and I was convinced that I was going to marry her. Um, She then, at one point, sat me down, and not long before I went to seminary, and told me that she was not interested in having any more relationship. We broke up. She got married just a few months later. I was so devastated by that. I remember going through, I went three days without even being able to eat. I was just, it was, it was awful. And I was trying to apply theology, but I was heartbroken. Heartbroken. And if you'd asked me then, how is this good? How is this beautiful? I would have had no answer. And then I saw her. And I remember on my wedding day, I remember the thought when my bride was walking down the long aisle at Grace Community Church. If you're a bride and you don't like to be looked at, don't get married at Grace. It is a long walk. And she was walking down, and I remember thinking, what if I had married someone else? What if, what if? And I just couldn't believe that moment because God makes everything good, right, just, perfect, beautiful, in its time. Even if we don't see the beauty and the good, in this moment it will be resolved later. In this life it will be resolved in heaven. All will be resolved. He will make everything beautiful in its time. But we can't define those times. So what? So don't despair when life is hard. Don't think this is the end of the story. Remember what Paul told us this morning? Hey, hey, it's okay. God's got this. It's okay. Number four, what God has appointed is beyond understanding. What God has appointed is beyond understanding. In the middle of verse 11, he has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. This is a famous verse, but few people actually stop to ask what it means. Eternity in their heart. There is in every man an unquenchable desire to ask why and to know that this world is not all there is. Every man is a natural born theologian. Listen, all of you are theologians tonight. You are extremely thoughtful theologians. The question is are you accurate theologians? Man is born a natural philosopher and theologian. It's another way of saying that God has made man curious. By putting eternity in our hearts, he is curious. And if you're not sure about that, can I just invite you down to the four-year-olds to, for uh, um, uh, the children's program just to, just to spend an hour with the four-year-olds if you don't think they're curious? Give a three- to five-year-old, what's their favorite question? One word. 
Why? Why? You need to eat. Why? You need to go to bed. Why? Brush your teeth. Why? Obey me. Why? We have the ability and desire to ask the heaviest questions of life, but no ability to answer them without God. Man longs for meaning, but God will not let him have it unless he gets his meaning from him. This desire is the blessing hidden in the curse. The fact that we can't find meaning in, the, in life is such a blessing because if we did, we wouldn't look to God. Eternity longs to be satisfied in our hearts. God wants you not to figure life out, but to pour out your heart to him to figure him out. It's okay to ask why, but when you begin demanding an answer, that's unconscionable. What God has appointed is beyond our understanding. We don't see the whole thing. So what? So trust God. Trust God. This is only possible if you know the next insight, by the way. Number five, what God has appointed is gracious. It's gracious, verse 12 and 13. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. Now we found some good news. If you work hard and you pay your bills and you're responsible to save money or to have extra money, to spend some of that money to enjoy this life is not bad at all. It's good, in fact. It's a blessing. Every man eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. If you find a sandwich that you like, a meal that you like, a steak that you like, a piece of salmon that I like, enjoy it. But enjoy it, what this verse says, verse 13, as the gift of God. If not, it will become an idol. Just because you can't figure out all that God's doing, all of his workings now, you can live now, you can enjoy life now, and you can obey now. The key to this passage, and actually the whole book, is in the little phrase, it is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes is so balanced. It's so encouraging. Basically, Solomon is, 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 is not saying become a monk and don't enjoy anything in life. He's saying if anyone is going to enjoy something in this world, it ought to be a Christian, a believer, who can enjoy these things as gifts from God. What God has appointed is gracious. It's so kind. There's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. You can enjoy life. And a, a Christian should not feel guilty about enjoying the best parts of this life. And can I just tell you, the best parts of this, this life are free. You walk through the woods, you see a doe and, and a fawn. You walk through the woods and you, you hear a hum, you see a hummingbird. You, you walk down the street and you enjoy the sunshine. You, you just have the four seasons. You know that in summer you can't wait for fall. And in fall you, you can't wait for winter. And in winter you can't wait for spring. And it's this wonderful pull of look at what God has done. He even makes death amazing. When the trees give up their leaves to die every year, he's decided, 
I think I'll make that pretty. What an amazing God. What God has done and appointed is gracious, so enjoy the blessings of life as a gift from God. You'll know that if they're a gift of God by praying about them. And if you, can, if you can't thank God for it, it's not from him. Number six, what God has appointed is authoritative. What God has appointed is authoritative. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. You ever notice that there are no, at least according to the Bible, there are no suggestion boxes for heaven? No good ideas. God never says, anybody got any better ideas than I have? Everything God does will remain forever. This is the humble submission to God's authority, the humble submission to God's sovereignty. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. God is an absolute key, critical control, and the key word is I know. I know. I know that everything God does will remain forever. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What God has appointed is authoritative. It stands. So what? So submit to God with a soft heart. Submit to God with a soft heart. Why do we fight God's sovereignty. Number seven, what God has appointed is awesome. Now, this is not in the junior high vernacular of awesome. This is in the biblical term of awesome, creating awe. Look at verse 14 in the middle. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Step back in awe in relation to him. Here we have Solomon the preacher, his practical application to the sovereignty of God. We're in awe. We fear him. We're amazed. To fear God, let me give you the best definition. I know it is a phobia. Is it, is it to be terrified, afraid? Is it to be reverential? Let me give you the best definition, I think, coming out of Proverbs. To fear God is ultimately to worship God. To see him as he is and respond appropriately. That's what it means to fear God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Therefore, we will fear him. Solomon also says, fools despise wisdom and instruction, which comes from the fear of God. God's sovereignty is awesome in the truest sense. And we are to be in worshipful, amazed fear with his providence and his sovereignty. I don't think we as Christians say wow enough. We see what God's done just to say wow, wow. I caught myself uh, doing that. I don't, uh, is Caleb here? Where are you, Caleb Nichols? Every time I see you, I just say wow, what God did to preserve your life. We should be looking for wow moments from God all over the place. Because he's doing amazing things all the time, everywhere. I wonder what that would do to our evangelism if people saw us as little kids just amazed at God. Did you see what God did? Did you see that sunset? Well, actually, that's the particles of uh, pollution that have 
accumulated on the horizon and it refracts and reflects. But God did, God, look at what God did with that. We should be amazed. What God has appointed is awesome, so fear and worship him in everything. In everything. And number eight, what God has appointed is unchangeable. Interesting verse. Verse 15 uh, throws a curveball to a lot of people. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Anybody looking for a life verse? God, what is he saying? God uses what has passed by as proof that we should acknowledge his sovereign rule now and in the future. We can no more change God's plan than we can change the past, in other words. The best way for us to know and acknowledge God's sovereignty is to feed it with scriptural accounts of what he's done in the past. The Bible wasn't given as a bunch of stories so that we would just have something to read to our children at the end of the day. It was given to us to know the ways of God. What he's done is to say, look at how he is. God is, think about this, God is wonderfully predictable. We know what he's like. We know what he does. We don't wake up wondering, I wonder what kind of mood God is in today. What God has appointed is unchangeable. So, respond to life as you would respond to God. You said, hang on, we already said that. Right. If God appoints what is unchangeable, let's respond to what is unchangeable because it's from God. It's the lesson of this text that bookends this section of Ecclesiastes. Back to God's sovereignty. Now, it's said that an evangelical sermon without a Spurgeon quote is lacking. That's not why I have a Spurgeon quote, but I have a Spurgeon quote. This is really insightful. Listen to the Prince of Preachers, what he says. I put it up so you can follow along. There is no attribute more comforting to his, God's children, than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a soccer ball, football, as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his Almonry to dispense, almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up all the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But 
when God ascends to his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is the God upon the throne we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. Isn't that good? By now, you're probably asking things like, what about injustice? What about death? What about unfairness? What about oppression? What about competition? What about losing? What about isolation, loneliness, poverty, helplessness? That's exactly what Solomon answers in the rest of this chapter all the way through chapter 4. And we'll answer that question beginning in our next study. Solomon's wise. Is that an understatement? He's so wise. And ultimately, this points to our love for the God who is sovereign, who became a man, Jesus Christ. Father, give us insights from Ecclesiastes and how we can understand the gospel better. I pray that you will underscore these theological truths and make us accurate theologians, not careless ones. That you give us understanding that's beyond our own abilities. That we would have the peace of God that surpasses knowledge and understanding because we trust and know and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.